Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Talking today about finding hope after suicide, and our second guests are Joanne Harpal and Dr. Paula Clayton. Dr. Paula Clayton is the medical director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Joanne Harpal is the director of survivor initiatives for the foundation and is a survivor of her brother Stephen's suicide in 1993. Welcome to the show, Paula, Joanne, and welcome back, Gloria. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Hyde. Well, it's good to have you on the show, uh, Joanne and Paula. Can we call you? I know we're your doctor. Should we call you Dr. Paula or Paula? Just Paula is fine. Thanks. <laughs> okay. All right. It's, it's wonderful. I, I like this combination that you have, um, having a doctor on and then, uh, Joanne, your, uh, your brother, your, what do you call yourself? A suicide survivor? A survivor. Or? Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so we, we're going to, uh, take both perspectives on it. Heidi has a little bit of uh, connect with your organization because, Heidi, didn't you go to the big event a couple of years I ago? I did. I went to the event, and you guys may have been there, in 2008 at the American Museum of Natural History here in Manhattan, and Eric Hipple won the Lifetime Achievement Award then, and it was an amazing event, and there was incredible people there that were really trying to make a difference in the world. Right, right. Yeah. It's an annual event, so. Right. And when are you having it this year? It's is it, it, it will be in May. It probably will not be at the Natural Muse, Museum of Natural History, but another, I'm sure, notable place. And, mm-hmm. and it's our big fundraising event, dinner event, celebration. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to start out the show a little bit uh, by having Joanne talk about Stephen. Is it Stephen? It is. Uh-huh. Want to tell us a little bit about him? And you were telling me that he um, died by suicide 16 years ago? He did. My younger brother was uh, 26 years old. He was an honors graduate of Yale University and a Harvard wow. Law School graduate. He was wow. married to his college sweetheart. He had just started a job as a tax attorney at a large corporate law firm in San Francisco had no prior history of mental health problems at all, was by any measure of success in life doing extremely well, and uh, as an adult developed bipolar disorder. And although we took him to a whole series of doctors and he was hospitalized multiple times and we tried very hard to get him the best medical care we could, he took his own life about a year after being diagnosed. Wow. Now, is that... Is that um Paula, is that kind? Of, do you hear that a lot? That people, families have been trying to help these people. Oh yes, certainly. Ninety percent of people who die by suicide have a mental disorder, mm-hmm. and I, I would think half of them have had care of some sort. Uh, some of it is continuous and and uh, and and good care, but it 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 obviously. Did, 
it wasn't perfect. And many others start care and are giving, given either psychotherapy or medication and then stop it uh, and then take their lives, whereas there are a whole another set of people who, without any diagno- any any previous awareness that they have a mental disorder, uh, die by suicide. There are mainly people who are depressed but don't realize that depression can be fatal. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a San Franciscan, so I know we, you know, have been talking a lot about barriers at the Golden Gate Bridge, and, you know, um, I have a couple of people that I know in the last two years have jumped off the bridge. Oof. Um, yeah. Well, and they're, and, and they're saying that if you have barriers, oftentimes when people are going to jump or going to kill themselves, if there's a barrier, they often, you know, they won't do it, and they often sometimes, sometimes they don't even go back and try to do it at all. Right. Oh, no, there's very good. We, we certainly have been staunch supporters of barriers on the, okay. on the bridge, and there's very good data that shows that in several different um, states and countries that if you put up barriers that people don't jump off that bridge and they don't go to the neighboring bridges. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an impulsive act in a certain number of people uh, that is thwarted, and 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 then the barriers, of course, do another thing, and that is sometimes they allow a net will allow for those people to be taken to care, which is also a very important step in in the whole process. Right. Well, uh, Joanne, how did uh, Stephen take his life? He shot himself. And we we were looking at some of the statistics that uh, this is one of the major ways of uh, dying by suicide now, right? It it is increasingly for women as well. What what was ironic, of course, in my brother's situation is that he um, had never been even active in in sports, particularly. He had no no of those sort of stereotypical male aggression kinds of qualities. He was he was. Uh, sort of a philosopher by nature, and so the idea that he would die by such a violent means was was so out of character for him and therefore so indicative of how ill he was. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so impressed that you're doing things for people after the suicide because I think there, there's so much that goes on where there's no help after you're, the you're families. You're right. I mean, because suicide is still so stigmatized, so many people, when they lose a loved one to suicide, don't know anyone else who's ever been through this experience. Or or they may know people but don't realize that those people have had some experience with suicide because it's not something that people are particularly open about. And so one of our goals at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is to not only provide support and information, but to do it in the context of bringing these issues out into the open and destigmatizing them. Joanne is is the director of suicide initiatives for the foundation, and we have a, a general mission that involves research and education and advocacy, but also support for people with mental disorders and support for people who've lost someone to suicide. And she really plans all these programs which you should have her tell you about. Mm-hmm. Well, Joanne, I wanted to ask you, yeah, I wanted to say now, I live in Palo Alto, California, and uh, we in the past six months have had two two high school kids step in front of trains, Caltrain. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that. I actually have cousins who went to Gunn High School, so oh, okay. following that very closely. Yeah. So, so I, so here I am. What would you suggest? Not necessarily to those specific families, but here I am. And many people that are listening to this show right now 
are newly bereaved with a suicide, what, what would you say to me? Well, the, there are several things. First of all, to know that you're not alone, that, that what the research shows is that the, during the course of our lifetime, about 85% of us will lose someone that we know to suicide. Of that, a little over 20% will lose a family member, and about 60% will lose someone that they know personally. So, sadly, it's much more common than we realize, again, because it's not something that people talk about particularly openly. The second is to reiterate a point that Paula made a couple of moments ago, which is that what we know, again, from the research is that more than 90% of people who take their own lives have some kind of underlying psychiatric illness at the time of their death, whether that's depression or bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, substance abuse, or some combination. Not always diagnosed, of course, and that's the key is that without adequate diagnosis and treatment, these illnesses can be fatal and, and in some cases are. Um, but the reason that, that, that that's important for survivors to remember is that because so many survivors are plagued by such a sense of guilt and responsibility mm -hmm. and agonizing over what they could have done differently or what they should have said. And so to, to keep in mind that someone who takes their own life is dying from an illness the same way someone could die of heart disease or cancer dies of an illness. And to take, to, to take away that sense of guilt and responsibility from the survivors and let them grieve their loss without beating themselves up that they were somehow to blame. You know, part of the problem, I think, and I don't know how you can log in on this, is that the mental health community uh, is not clued into this. A lot of therapists still look to the family to find out what happened. And the family, in turn, is looking to the therapist. And, yeah. and well, some people aren't even in therapy. You know, where they have exactly. a kid step out and then, and then people say, well, what, what's wrong with that family? You know, it must have been something going on. Do you have any thoughts on that, Heidi? Um, any, well, I think, I think you're right. I think, I think society in general will look and say, okay, what, how, what don't we, what was really going on behind closed doors? And the bottom line is, like you're, you're pointing out, this is a, this is a mental illness. People have mental illness and, um, we need to realize that. And I think it's scary for people to realize that it could happen to anybody. You want to think, okay, something happened behind closed doors that we don't know about. You know, people, so that's all I mean, would say about it. I don't know. If you mm -hmm. guys want to add something. Yeah, well, when in the old days when I was uh, a family therapist, uh, what, a while back they used to say um, if somebody kills himself, somebody in the family is giving him that message. That's how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Well, and I, and I think what's so sad is that even though as a society we may be getting better about articulating that kind of blame, survivors blame themselves. And so a lot of that stigma is imposed on the survivors to themselves that they believe that somehow this is their fault. And it's so, it's so heartbreaking because the survivors are grieving a loss and, mm -hmm. um, and Every family has arguments and every relationship has difficulties and it doesn't mean that because you had a fight with someone and, and that afternoon they killed themselves that you caused them to do it. So what do I say? Here I am. I'm newly bereaved. Uh, my child died by suicide. Um, how do I deal with it? I mean, you know, what do I say to people when they say well, what happened to your child? Or Is that hard for survivors? It's hard for many survivors, and what we really encourage people to do is, is stick with simple truths and to say, to use, to use the language, you know, my son or daughter died by suicide or took her, his or her own life, or my son or daughter was extremely depressed and, and tragically ended up taking his or her own life, to, to, to frame it in terms of the depression or, or whatever the illness was 
and but not to feel compelled to come up with some other story about what happened because lying about it just reinforces to the survivor and to everyone else that there's some reason to be ashamed and there's no reason to be ashamed at all. And you want to also, though, that they can also go to our website. There are many support other ways you can reach out, right, Joanne? There are our website, which is www.afsp.org, has, among other things, a directory of all of the support groups around the country that we know about. There are close to 500 of them. And you do a lot of wonderful training. Well, we thank you. We um, feel very strongly that a lot of people who want to run support groups, although they're very well-meaning, have had no training and really are, are interested in, in finding out the very best, most effective ways to run support groups for survivors, whether they're lay people or mental health professionals. And so we run a training program that we offer about half a dozen times throughout the year in different cities to train both lay people and professionals on how to run a support group for survivors. And all of that information is also on our website, which is afsp.org. Yeah. Now, what if I want to run a support group? Um, you know, how far out? Of, is there a time? Like, I, I run a compassionate friends group for people who have lost children, which suicide people, you know, come into, too. But uh, we say 18 months before you can start leading um, a, a group. Do you have any time limits like that? We do. Our recommendation is actually two years. Mm -hmm. So in order for someone to attend our training, we require that they be two years from their loss. Of course, the groups themselves are not run through AFSP. They're run independently. And so there certainly may be instances of individuals who are starting groups sooner than that. But we find that about about two years is a, a fair approximation. You know, certainly there are people who are ready sooner than that, and there are some people who five years after the loss are still not uh, in the right place in terms of their own healing to run a group. But but that's our best recommendation. Well, uh, Paula, I wanted to ask you as a physician, do you have any thoughts on medication or health, or what are your recommendations? Oh, well, I mean, it really depends on the illness. But certainly for depression, we've just finished a great film for teaching high school students about depression. It's a 26-minute film, and we have a facilitator guide. And in that film for high school students, we show the different faces of depression, anxiety, just out-of-the-blue depression, using drugs and alcohol, and then bullying and in those in all those cases they go into therapy and in two of the cases when the therapy doesn't seem to be relieving the symptoms they also take medication mm -hmm. so i i think that the best route uh, for treatment is either through therapy or a referral for, for treatment through your primary care or pediatrician. Are you worried about other family members after and friends after a suicide? Oh, certainly. Uh, oh, certainly. I mean, the, the group of people who grieve after a suicide can be enormous. I mean, we actually, Joanne's involved in writing uh, a post uh, postvention for schools because schools continually ask us, you know, how shall we handle this in the school setting where it affects enormous numbers of, of kids as well as the parents and the teachers. Well, so and the, people the, are worried, the and people are worried that if you talk about suicide openly, people will do it. Because people think that if you talk about suicide, then people will do it. 
Well, I, it's a complicated question. Certainly, uh, most there, there are good data that show if you ask about suicide, um, it does not cause other people to to think about suicide. Especially, uh, it, the data come though even from schools, even from school systems where they did ask the questions and then came back and asked them again. And those who were asked actually had better outco- better scores the next time on these distress symptoms than those who weren't asked the first time. And there was nobody that uh, got, it it didn't expand the second time when they'd been asked before. In general, however, so so we, we encourage everyone, if you're concerned about suicide, if there's something the person does, no matter what their age, uh, and it, it makes you think about suicide, you should ask that person on an individual level. And, and the, depending on the answers, are you, do you, are you thinking about, or do you wish you were dead? Are you thinking about harming yourself? Have you thought of a way? And depending on those answers, you really need to get someone in to help if they're, they're clearly suicidal when you ask them. We also, however, believe that, uh, the way newspapers handle uh, suicide, uh, and, and especially glamorizing it and showing the method, etc., may actually produce contagion, and that too is a real fact. So that if if a, a suicide occurs, like at, on a railroad track, and it's advertised on the front page or reported on the fr- front page, that can cause contagion. Mm-hmm. In high, one last thing. In high schools, then our our board advisory board felt that we did not want to make a program that concentrated on suicide, since the most common illness that ends in suicide is depression. They thought the best way to actually prevent suicide was to teach teachers and students what what depression looks like and how to get treatment. Right. Well, I think it's great, and and we we focus a bit on those young folks. But I've been looking at some of the suicide statistics on your site, and it, it's very interesting to go to their to go to the site. Give us your site again. It's www.a as an American f as in foundation s as in suicide p as in prevention dot org a f sp.org. It's a fountain of information, and I want to say that what one thing I found interesting is the uh, how much depression there is among women, and also that some of the highest suicide risks are with older men too, people who get cut off socially. So uh, I think it's important to know that they're out there too. Right. Yeah, and uh, and that, and that you're there for them with groups and that kind of thing. Hey. Exactly. You know, again, although we do offer training for people who are running groups, the groups themselves are all operated independently. So we have a directory on our website of every group in the country that we've ever heard of. There are almost 500 groups throughout the country. There are also many groups online because we do realize that going to a support group is not right for everyone whether it's because they're not comfortable in a group setting or because the group meets on a day and time that they're not available or it's too far away from them geographically, which is a particular problem for people who live in rural areas, so that there are also some excellent groups that meet um, in in cyberspace that are very good and and run by people that we know well and and really trust. That's great. Well, before we close the show, I wondered if you could each uh, give us some of your thoughts. Joanne, if you could talk a little bit 
as a survivor of suicide to those folks out there, uh, giving them hope and telling them how you've gotten through? Sure. I um, I actually very much by accident but, but very fortuitously found out about an event about six weeks after my brother died. It, it was called National Survivors of Suicide Day. And it turns out that that's a day that was created by resolution of the United States Senate. Senator Harry Reid of Nevada lost his father to suicide. And he created a national day every year on the Saturday before Thanksgiving for survivors of suicide loss. There's information about that day on our website. It takes place every year. And what, what happens on that day is that there are conferences in 200 cities around the country and, and increasingly internationally where survivors can go and spend the day getting information and support and meeting other survivors. And that program is also available on our website because, again, we know that not everyone can attend a program on a particular day or there may not be a conference near, near to them. So again, AFSP.org has information about all of those conferences, and the program from last year is on the web, available for viewing 24 hours a day free of charge. So for me, an event like that created an opportunity to feel that I wasn't alone and to realize that there was a whole community of people out there who looked like me and were just as bewildered as me and just as sad and struggling with just as many questions, but they could find hope and support and strength in one another. And, you know, I think eventually, I don't know, I've noticed with Compassionate Friends that eventually it doesn't really matter how they died. We miss them like mad. Of course. You know, this is someone that you loved and felt close to, and there's no, there's no such thing as, as a magical day when, when it, there's closure or when you no longer think about them or care about them. But what, you, what we do find is that for most survivors, they're able to integrate the loss into their lives. They're able to reorganize their lives in a way that, that still have meaning and still have a future, but that you carry that loss with you and you integrate it into who you are. That's great. Well, thank you, John. You certainly have, and what wonderful work you're doing. Paula, do you have a, a last comment you want to make for our folks out there? I just want to say that we are, besides our our educational, I mean, besides our research, we're very involved in education, and that's for, for both physicians and the healthcare community as well as the general public. So we have this new film on teen depression. We'll have a teacher's guide on suicide prevention. We just did a, a program uh, this week that's not ready yet it will be on our web on just depression and the and depression awareness, and we have patients uh, speaking about their own illnesses on it. So, I, I think our website is really a resource for um, all sorts of uh, ways to learn and help to reach out and to to educate yourself so that you can offer hope. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Both of you, it's been a great show, and what a a great service you're doing. We appreciate it. Thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 